Today's Dead Idea, this is part three of our series on the balance of power system in pre-World War I Europe that was intended to prevent a major war from ever happening again. And today we're going to look at the rise of nationalism and the role it played in messing up the balance of power, driving the world to a major war that happened again, the Great War, World War I. And we're going to read an actual article from the time leading up to World War I about nationalism, showing how it was viewed at that time. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, with whom I am currently in negotiations as to whether our new house's kitchen shall be filled with tomatoes or tomatoes, and death to the foreigners who say it wrong. I'm B.T. Newberg, you can call me Brandon. <laughs> uh, last time we went deep into the idea of the balance of power, which essentially states that powerful nations should be grouped into alliances that roughly balance each other out in terms of power, so that any major war between them would drag all the allies into it and result in a stalemate that cost everyone and benefited no one, so no one would be dumb enough to start such a big war. Hence, peace. This idea came to prominence in Europe after the conclusion of the murderously bloody Thirty Years' War in 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia, and lasted up until 1914 with the start of World War I. But how did that happen? How did World War I happen? Well, as we learned last time, one of the factors necessary for the balance of power system to work was states had to choose their alliances based not on religious or ideological factors, but on the expediency of the moment so that alliances would be made based on relative power rather than whose ideas you liked best. And that worked for a while after the Peace of Westphalia, religion astoundingly actually became a non-factor when it came to choosing alliance partners. But eventually, something else arose that became at least as dangerous to the balance as religion ever was. So let's talk about that now. The celebrated German field marshal, Count von Moltke, put words to this threat in a speech to the Reichstag, recounted in an 1890 article by James M. Hubbard. So Hubbard's actually describing Moltke, where, and then quoting him a little bit. He says about Moltke, with an impressiveness which carried conviction to all who heard him, he spoke of the inevitable conflict, quote-unquote, which had for more than ten years hung suspended over their heads like a Damocles sword. In his opinion, it would not necessarily be a short struggle, but, quote, there can be another seven years' war or even a thirty years' war, and woe be to him who sets Europe on fire by hurling a brand into the powder cask, end quote. At the same time, he asserted that it would be a people's war, that, quote, in these days of ours, it was neither sovereigns nor governments which brought about wars. The period of cabinet wars was over, and there were only left national wars with all their incalculable issues. And the German there is glossed as Volkskriege for national wars, as opposed to Kabinettskriege, which we talked about last time. So, in other words, wars were no longer being waged between princes as before the Peace of Westphalia, nor between governments as after the Peace of Westphalia, but rather something else entirely had begun to arise, a war of the people, 
a national war, and the firebrand that would light the powder cask of Europe would be nationalism. So this episode is going to set us up to understand the utter clusterfuck that was the Balkan situation just prior to World War I, and which started the whole World War I thing going, so let's dig into this nationalism that was so key to that. What is nationalism, and how did it develop in the 19th century? Okay, so first I'm going to give some background context, as short as I can, to the rise of nationalism, and then we're going to look at an article from 1914 to give a first-hand perspective from the Times on this. Okay, so I'll try to make this brief, but it's a complicated subject, and we want to get it right, so anyway, here we go. <clears throat> you could say that the seeds of nationalism were already sown in the peace of Westphalia that we've mentioned so many times before, which ushered in the era of the balance of power, because the terms of this international treaty established that states, rather than rulers, would be the principal actors in international relations. However, then you have to get into distinction between states and nations. What's a state? What's a nation? Which seems like an obscure question to us today because we're so used to the idea of nation-states that we don't recognize any difference between nations and states. And they seem like synonyms to us. But it wasn't always that way. We could hardly imagine a time when it was anything other than it is today, but really our concept is a very, very recent thing indeed. And at the time that nationalism is getting going, it's not the way at all. It's what they want it to be, but it's not the way at all. See, prior to the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, the principal actor was the ruler, typically a monarch whose rule was legitimized by divine right. The Peace of Westphalia changed the principal actor to the state, or in other words, the government. So state means government in this dichotomy here. That seems like a minor change, but it, it's actually huge. It's actually ginormous, because at that point, the actor becomes abstracted. Now it's a whole state apparatus. It's no longer coupled to a particular person or dynasty legitimized by divine right. So that's kind of the setup to this. That legitimacy question is going to haunt us to this. And we just learned that the state part means government. But what about a nation? A nation, as the term was used up until very recently, basically means what we now call an ethnicity. It, it was a community of people bound together by language, customs, folk traditions, and religion, whether or not they had their own government. So, for example, you could speak of the Jewish nation even before there was the Israeli state after World War II. So even in the time of World War I, there was no Israel, but there was a Jewish nation in, you know, in the way that nation is being used here. It's like an ethnic community. Now, nationalism can mean a lot of different things, from a kind of sentimental patriotism to a violent revolutionary ideal. But the idea in the sense that I want to talk about it here is essentially... The idea that each nation, each ethnic community, has the right to its own state, its own government. And those two things, if you have like the two circles on your Venn diagram, what they want, what this idea says is that those two circles should overlap entirely, right? So that they seem like the same thing, as they kind of do to us today. As the 18th century German philosopher Fichte put it, 
whenever a separate language exists, there a separate nation is found, which has the right to take independent charge of its affairs and to govern itself. Language was really a central rallying point for nationalistic thinking. Here's another highly influential German nationalist philosopher, Johann Herder. He says, Is a people, especially an uncultivated people, more fond of anything than the language of its fathers? Its complete wealth of views on tradition, history, religion, and principles of life reside in language. All of the people's heart and soul to take away or derogate the language of such a people means to take away all of the people's eternal assets, what is passed on from parent to child, who suppresses me of my language also wants to rob me of my mind and way of life, of my honor and the rights of my people. So, in other words, language was kind of a big deal. So the tomato-tomato joke that I made at the start was not really that far off the mark in the way these people were speaking so fiery, passionately at the time about this. Language was huge to them. Now, you have to ask the question at this point, why was all this suddenly so important? I mean, linguistic differences have been around since the dawn of time, so what's the deal? Well, it had a lot to do with the printing press, industrialization, and that pesky notion of legitimacy that governments are always so anxious to maintain that we were talking about earlier. So the printing press, which made its debut around 1450 or so, encouraged a kind of sort of standardization of language. Hitherto, regional variation in dialect had been kind of a badge of pride, but printers wanted to sell their books to the widest possible audience, and so they tended to remove regional dialectical words and phrases, thus contributing to the emergence of a kind of de facto standard dialect. And rulers, too, had similar motivations. They wanted their edicts to be widely understood, and so followed a similar course in their documents, removing the regionalisms. And gradually, as a result of this, dialectical variation came to be seen differently. Instead of being seen as a badge of pride, it kind of came to be seen as country bumpkinism. So the whole view of language was changing as a result of the printing press. Meanwhile, industrialization was uprooting people from their home regions as more and more sought work in, you know, the large urban centers and things in the factories there, which sort of undermined their sense of regional identities and promoted a more national kind of consciousness. So that was contributing to this as well. And finally, that notion of legitimacy of governments was finding itself in totally uncertain waters. So think about it. If the ruler or ruling dynasty is not legitimized by God's own hand coming down from heaven and giving like you know the official divine fist bump, then... What's to say that someone else or even some other kind of government entirely shouldn't be in charge? Suddenly all these questions are up in the air. What could take the place of divine right in legitimizing your government? This was a question that was sort of quietly nagging away at the states of Europe as they transitioned from the pre-Westphalian paradigm of religious alliances of Catholic states versus Protestant states to the post-Westphalian paradigm of 
mostly secular alliances based on the expediency of the moment. And into this milieu came a new kind of thinking that maybe, maybe, it was the cultural unity of the people governed that gave governments the right to rule, the legitimate right to rule. And I don't know if there was any one person in particular who originated this idea, but an early voice in it was the Swiss author Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was big in Romanticism, of course, whose notion that government was really a social contract entered upon by the people for mutual benefit seemed to conduce to and further this kind of thinking. I mean, if the government was essentially by consent of the people, then it made sense that it should be based on who they are, that is, on their national identity. Uh-huh, picking up on it? Yeah, starting to make a little sense there, right? Then, the French Revolution was also a major factor in the rise of nationalism as they kicked out their monarch and installed a republic instead. Now, when you fight for France, who are you fighting for and why, right? It can't be a ruler legitimized by divine right. So instead, you were fighting for France itself, the state as self-determined by the French. So that really took these sort of budding proto-nationalist tendencies and philosophical ideas conducive to it and kind of really started to make it start to coalesce. But the French Revolution actually went downhill pretty fast, as we all know, and out of the ruins of that came a little guy named Napoleon, who chucked out pretty much all the revolutionary ideals and started invading everybody else, and see our first episode for that. And surprise, surprise, some people didn't like that. And this has to do with the rise of nationalism, too, because the Germans who had previously been disunified into hundreds of tiny statelets since the Peace of Westphalia, suddenly rallied around a collective fuck you Napoleon and awoke to their collective Germanness, which eventually contributed to the unification of Germany. And if you add to this mix something called Pan-Slavism, which was basically the notion that all Slavic peoples were in some way related and should be buddy-buddy, basically, which was maybe sort of kind of a cover for Russia trying to gain influence in the Slavic states of Eastern Europe. Maybe, probably. Anyway, Pan-Slavism added to that nationalist um, kind of rising ideal as well. So all of this was blowing up in the 19th century. Now, this made for an explosive situation in multilingual countries like the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire both of which had their fingers in the Balkans region. Now, in the old days, if your people got conquered by another people, that sucked, but you didn't necessarily reject their rule as inherently illegitimate because of that. But that changed with the rise of nationalism. Suddenly, the rule of the Ottomans or the Austro-Hungarians wasn't just oppressive and sucky, there was something fundamentally unnatural about it and wrong about it. The, because... The, the ethnic groups weren't ruling themselves. They had a right to their own. Each nation has a right to its own state under this idea, right? So it, something felt wrong about being ruled by the Ottomans or the Austro-Hungarians. They suddenly felt empowered by this idea, and it sat wrong with them. 
Consequently, all the different little ethnic groups that these empires ruled over felt empowered to rise up and demand autonomy. And it didn't matter what the balance of power required. That was no longer an issue in this case. None of that mattered to the fervent nationalists that's waving their flag and being like, you know, autonomy or death, the Balkans for the Balkan people, you know. They felt that they had a natural right to autonomy and they were willing to die for it. So that, in a nutshell, was how nationalism fucked with the balance of power system and started the match burning that would eventually light the fuse of World War I. Okay, that was as fast as I could make that. Now let's go to our article for today. So this comes from 1914, the first year of the Great War. The war starts in July, and this article is actually from December, so it's written just as people are coming to realize what a shitstorm has descended upon them. It's by a certain Herbert Adolphus Miller, and published in the National Review, which was a literary magazine founded in Boston with the intent of fostering a genuine American culture. Now, I'm not sure if it was actually consciously and explicitly involved in furthering American nationalism, but I wouldn't doubt it, so hmm, not sure. But in any case, this article is entitled Nationalism in Bohemia and Poland. Now, Bohemia is the region of the Slavic Czech people, which is now part of the Czech Republic. But in 1914, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And Poland is, of course, the region of the Slavic Poles, an independent country today, but a stateless people at the time, in 1914, with their region actually divided up between Germans, Russians, and Austro-Hungarians. Um, that was actually, during Frederick the Great's time, one of the kind of crazy-ass things that he did in his, um, that he got himself involved in was the partitioning up of Poland. So anyway, they're all divided up, and they don't have their own state. All right, so let's see what Mr. Miller here has to say about nationalism in these Slavic regions. Now, remember, with this public domain theater-style episodes, I don't actually read these articles in depth beforehand. I browse them to make sure that they're appropriate, but I don't read them. So it's like you and I are encountering this for the first time together. I don't really know what's coming any more than you do. So uh, let's find out. All right. So Nationalism in Bohemia and Poland by Herbert Adolphus Miller. No one can foretell the future political organization of Europe. Traditions, alliances, and antipathies will continue to exert an influence more or less in harmony with the past. There are, however, certain elemental states of mind whose development made the war upon which Europe has entered almost inevitable and which will continue to assert themselves until a political organization in harmony with their demands is accomplished. This war has been called a conflict of races, pan-Germanism versus pan-Slavism. The fundamental cause of the antagonism between these two peoples is neither racial nor economic, it is psychological. We call it nationalism. Now I find it interesting already that, like so many others at this time, they all knew of course that the thing that sparked the war was in the Balkans, but nobody was under the illusion that the war was about the Balkans. Here he's saying it's fundamentally about pan-Germanism versus pan-Slavism. Everybody knew at the time that the Balkan situation was just the spark that lit off something that had been smoldering and just waiting to explode for a long time coming. But what started it, we call it nationalism, he says. 
nationalism is the struggle of a group to preserve its own individuality. It is even more elemental than religion itself, and as in the case of the early Christian church, its growth to gigantic proportions has been fostered by the blind stupidity of rulers who could not see that the way to make it grow was to try to crush it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like persecuting it would actually only make it stronger, right? Get more and more zealous, the more hostile your ruler gets to you, you fight back even harder. That makes sense. It is akin to patriotism, but draws its lines according to the group consciousness for a common language and traditions, or the feeling of unity of blood through some common ancestor. It does not correspond to national boundaries, but rather to historic or even imaginary boundaries. It is sentimental rather than rational. In fine, it is the revolt of a people conscious of its unity against control by influences trying to annihilate this consciousness. Well, that seems well put. He continues, A familiar example of this spirit is the Irish home rule agitation. Nationalism does not express itself so much in antagonism to political supremacy as in resentment against the imposition of cultural influences, of which language is generally the chief instrument. So not so much angry that somebody else is in control, but that they're trying to force their culture on you. In older days, the victims of war were killed or enslaved. In recent times, they have been made subjects. Within a half century, and most rapidly within the last decade, the whole world has developed a spirit of revolt against the subject condition, whether political or cultural, and the spirit of nationalism has become dominant. Nationalism has sprung into being in its present form so rapidly that the world has been slow to recognize it as one of the most potent social forces of this generation. Norway long resented the authority of Sweden and ten years ago peaceably separated from her and is now officially reviving the language used by the people 400 years ago because the Danes imposed a foreign language and culture upon her. The Germans, both in the Empire and in Austria, have been ruthless in their efforts to impose their languages and ideas upon all who came under their power, with the result that every people in Europe both fears and hates them. So, yeah, that's kind of the double-edged sword of nationalism. I mean, it can really bond a people together, but it also incites some tensions with the other cultures that you're trying to define yourself against, right? It was the development of the national spirit among the peoples of southeastern Europe, focused against the efforts to impose upon them German language and culture, uh, that must have been through the Austro-Hungarian rule, that precipitated the present war. The policy of Europe has been the government of various areas and peoples by a few great powers. Of late years, this rule has been maintained with relatively less war than formerly, but a storm has been brewing and has finally broken. Austria has established her dominion over a heterogeneous aggregation of Germans, Poles, Bohemians, Slovaks, Slovenes, Serbs, Croatians, Bosnians, Dalmatians, and Italians. Russia has strengthened her control over Finland and Poland, but thanks to the new spirit of nationalism, there has never before been so little assimilation. It has long seemed inevitable that the time could not be indefinitely postponed when disintegration and realignments would change the map of Europe. When Austria appropriated Bosnia and Herzegovina, she gave an impetus to the forces 
that must eventually lead to her own destruction. While the assassination of the Grand Duke Ferdinand may not have been desired, it was exactly in harmony with the hostile spirit of the Slavs, who constitute two-thirds of the subjects of Austria. Each Slavic group has a strongly developing nationalism of its own coupled with the ponderously forming pan-Slavic consciousness. All the Slavic languages are closely related and serve as a symbol for a closer union of all the divisions. As an organization, pan-Slavism is only an ideal. It was, however, to meet the danger which he foresaw from pan-Slavism that the German Chancellor raised the unparalleled war tax two years ago, and thereby forced England and France into corresponding increases. I assume the Chancellor then must be two years ago, so that wouldn't be Bismarck, as he was fired earlier than that. Must have been Bismarck's successor Chancellor. The two largest subject Slavic groups, who have developed nationalism to the highest degree and have been the most influential in fostering antagonism to the Germans, are the Bohemians and the Poles. The present situation in Bohemia is well described in an address given by Count Lutzow in Prague in 1911. So Count Lutzow says, One of the most interesting facts that in Bohemia and especially in Prague marks the period of peace at the beginning of the 19th century is the revival of the national feeling and language. The greatest part of Bohemia, formerly almost Germanized, has now again become thoroughly Slavic. The national language, for a time used only by the peasantry in the outlying districts, is now freely and generally used by the educated classes in most parts of the country. Prague itself, that had for a time acquired almost the appearance of a German town, has now a thoroughly Slavic character. The national literature also, which had almost ceased to exist, is in a very flourishing state, particularly since the founding of a nationalist university. At no period have so many and so valuable books been written in the Bohemian language. And that's the end of Count Lutzow's quote there. Uh, so something I find really interesting here is, as I read through this quote, what I feel is like, oh yeah, they should be able to, you know, have their own country and, you know, make their own choices and self-determination. But I never associated my modern feeling of that with roots in nationalism, per se. I always felt like it was more about freedom, which probably says quite a bit about myself as an American and about kind of the influence of that sort of thinking in modern times, but no doubt that thinking comes out of this very nationalism that we're talking about. Yeah, it's just crazy, you know. I guess diversity is really the value that I would have thought that I am promoting today. Freedom and diversity, but here it's it's totally coming out of this nationalism. Okay, well, let's continue. Miller continues with, uh, Count Lutzow himself had an English mother and German father, but has identified himself completely with the Bohemian nationalism. The Countess is the daughter of a German minister in Mecklenburg, but feels such antipathy for the Germans that, not knowing the Bohemian language, she speaks only English and French. <laughs> About 50 years ago, several Bohemian writers were bold enough to write in their own language instead of German. From that time, the Bohemian spirit has grown until now hostility to the German language has become a passion. In many of the restaurants throughout Bohemia, the head waiter passes a collection box regularly for, quote, the mother of schools, which supports 
public schools in the Bohemian language in all parts of the country where there is a majority of Germans, only German schools being provided by the government in such communities. The inevitable result of this national spirit is the gradual elimination of the German language. One rarely hears German on the streets of Prague, whereas ten years ago one heard little else. Fathers who were brought up to speak German teach their children to speak Bohemian. Businessmen take the greatest pride in succeeding without knowing German, for it proves that Bohemia is developing ability to stand alone. Most older people know both languages equally well, but the younger know little German. At the University of Prague, the Bohemian graduates do not know German well, and the Bohemian part of the university is more than twice as large as the German. The nationalizing process of unifying the people is going on in the face of the disrupting force of 11 political parties and the sharp spiritual division into Catholics and anti-Catholics. So, in other words, despite all the things that would normally keep such a thing back, it's still strong enough that it is managing to unify the people. Hmm. It is unquestionably been a disadvantage for a people of seven millions to cut itself off from the opportunities of the environing German culture, science, and commerce. But even those who have seen this most clearly have deliberately made the sacrifice in their struggle for the freedom of the spirit. In other words, they have a lot to lose by not taking part in German culture because of all the, you know, technological and cultural and everything, things that German culture has to offer, but they're willing to make that sacrifice. When we remember that the prestige is on the side of the Germans, we realize in this movement the same indifference to personal success that characterizes the religious enthusiast. Yeah, I can see that. Bohemian nationalism is strong also in America, expressing itself most strongly in organized propaganda for free thought. This is an interesting story in itself. It is mentioned because primarily it is an expression of the historical hatred of Catholic Austria, just as Polish Catholicism is in opposition to Orthodox Russia and Protestant Prussia and Irish Catholicism to Protestant England. Oh, interesting. So the Bohemians actually go in for atheism out of all that just to stick it to the man. I love it. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that part. As the sight of a Russian church makes a Pole pious, so the sight of any church intensifies Bohemian free thinking. In the city of Chicago alone, there are 27,000 Bohemians who make quarterly payments for the support of schools on Saturday and Sunday for the teaching of the Bohemian language and free thought. In other words, they would be going to study Bohemian language instead of going to church. The most inclusive form of Slavic nationalism is Pan-Slavism. An enormous stride toward its crystallization was made by the International Slavic Gymnastic Meet in Prague in 1912. More than 20,000 persons took part, at one time 11,000 men speaking many different languages and including the soon-to-be enemies Bulgarians and Serbians were doing calisthenic exercises together. The Poles, by the way, the, the Bulgarians versus Serbians things, that has to do with the Balkans War, which we're going to talk about in the next episode. So stay tuned for that. The Poles would not come because the Russians were invited, but all the other Slavic divisions were represented. Slovaks, Slovenes, Serbs, Serbians, Croatians, Bulgarians, Montenegrins, Ruthenians, Moravians, Bohemians, and Russians. Slavie, Slavie was the keynote of every speech, 
and every utterance aroused the wildest enthusiasm. The meet was held at the same time that the Olympic Games were taking place at Stockholm. The latter aroused the greatest international interest, but the meet at Prague, which was fanning the sparks which were to set Europe aflame with war, passed almost unnoticed by all but Slavs. A quarter of a million visitors filled the city, and illustrated reports of the exhibition went to the ends of the Slavic world. A few weeks afterward, I saw some pasted on the wall of a peasant factory in the back districts of Moscow. The German papers of Prague were full of the Stockholm games, but completely ignored the meat in their own city, which no self-respecting German could attend. The streets were everywhere brilliant with flags, but never the Austrian flag. During the Balkan War, for Austria to threaten Serbia, Serbia, I'm pronouncing that right because it's a V in at this time, it's, but we know it now as Serbia with a B, but okay. So for Austria to threaten Serbia was like rushing to destruction, for it was bound to arouse a Slavic revolt. When Bohemians were being entrained from their garrisons for mobilization on the Serbian border, they sang the pan-Slavic hymn, Hey Slovane, strung, sung by all the Slavic nations, but forbidden to Austrian soldiers in service. This is an enthusiastic and powerful hymn, full of encouragement to the Slavs, telling them that their language shall never perish, nor shall they, quote, even though the number of Germans equal the number of souls in hell, unquote. It is estimated that more than 70,000 young men disappeared from Austria when they were called for their military service. There is every reason to believe that in the present war, also the heart of the Austrian Slav is on the other side. Okay, now it looks like he's going to transition toward the story of Poland. Poland, perhaps, offers the most highly developed example of nationalism. It was never a conspicuous country, but over a hundred years ago it was free. Germany, Austria, and Russia divided it, and completely ignoring sociological laws have tried to absorb it. Never was there another so persistent and deliberate effort to wipe out national individuality, which is true, by the way. Part of this, I didn't get into this in the Frederick the Great episode, uh, but Frederick the Great, he was hoping to eventually have no Poles whatsoever. No creepy um, rings of Hitler in that at all, but no, he didn't have in mind any kind of final solution, kind of genocide kind of thing. He was going to um, move Germans in and eventually, and promote German language and eventually just kind of like edge the Poles out and assimilate them. But Frederick the Great had no love of Poles, and he very much had in mind to get rid of them completely if he could. Never was there another so persistent and deliberate effort to wipe out national individuality, but if there ever was a case of imperial indigestion, Poland has caused three chronic attacks. <laughs> so they gobbled up Poland, but caused, us, caused them belches? <laughs> Bismarck's foolish policy of forbidding the Polish language and forcing Germans in its place, and Russia's similar policy with the Russian, can be called a basic cause for the present European turmoil, because it has made the preservation of language a religion, and martyrdom for it a glorification. The Poles think that their love for the church is piety, 
while in reality they are good Catholics because their religion is Poland, and Catholicism is a Polish protest against Orthodox Russia and Protestant Prussia. Interesting. So, in other words, this guy's calling bullshit when he sees it, sort of. He's saying, you're rallying around the Catholic Church, but really it's a means to an end of rallying around the Polish identity because Russia and Germany both don't want you to be Catholic. So that's the thing where you can stick it to the man. It's about sticking it to the man, at least according to this author. All right. I was interested to observe that a Polish gentleman whose education would have made him a weak Catholic in any other country after passing a Russian church would always cross himself more fervidly when passing the next Catholic church. Every sign of Russia or Germany says to a Pole, be a good Catholic. In fact, any particular religious form is never so strong as the spirit of nationalism to which it may often serve merely as a symbol. The obsession of the Poles is to find some way to thwart the plans of the various controlling governments. Progress as a policy has no interest for them. Pan-Slavism has not as yet become a motive to them, partly because their hatred of the Russians has hitherto precluded any suggestion of a union with them. Since they are the most numerous Slavs, except the Russians, numbering about 40 millions, and the most aggressively nationalistic, they have been one of the chief causes of the heavy armaments of both Germany and Russia. If the promise of Russia to grant autonomy to the Poles in return for their loyalty is made in good faith, she has under the compulsion of necessity taken a step which sound sense should have dictated long ago. It is difficult to imagine the change of front which will occur among the Poles in consequence. Unquestionably, its influence on the Pan-Slavic Union will be exceedingly great. So, in other words, if Russia gives up trying to dominate the Poles, then they'll prob the Poles will probably join with all the other Slavs, and that'll spell bad news for Germany. I also found it interesting that the build-up of military in both Germany and Russia was partly due to confronting this Polish nationalism, which kind of just set the conditions for Germany and Russia to have huge militaries facing each other off when World War I breaks out. So that's kind of interesting. I didn't know that part of it. Lithuania and Finland show the same phenomenon of growing national spirit as Bohemia and Poland. Okay, so I guess we're moving on from Poland now. In their cases, however, the revolt is against the cultural authority of a group who are not their political rulers instead of being both political and cultural. The Lithuanian movement is going on within Poland. Several centuries ago, the two countries were united by the marriage of rulers, the government and culture of Lithuania becoming Polish. Oh yeah, because for a long, long time it was Poland-Lithuania with a hyphen. That's right. So I guess we're still talking about Poland after all. The Lithuanian language was preserved by the peasants as in Bohemia. Poles and Germans were the landholders, the Lithuanians were the laborers and serfs. Within the last decade, the Lithuanian consciousness has burst into a conflagration. A man fully Polish in culture and association, but possessing Lithuanian blood, becomes Lithuanian in spirit. He learns the language from the peasants and chooses them for associates rather than the cultured Poles whom he would have sought ten years ago. 
After the revolution in 1905 in the gymnasia, the privilege was granted to students of adopting the Russian, Polish, or Lithuanian language for part of their instruction, where previously only Russian had been allowed. In a gymnasium in Vilna, 10 years ago, 3 out of 30 chose Lithuanian. Now, out of the same number, at least 20 take Lithuanian. This change is an indication of the growth of the movement among the people. I have had two Lithuanian students who speak Polish as a mother tongue and Lithuanian with relative difficulty. Hmm, I wonder if this author is actually, maybe he's actually employed in the gymnasiums or something. Hmm, I'm not sure. One is half Polish in blood and has learned to read Lithuanian since coming to this country. When attending the gymnasium in 1905, he chose Polish as his language. His younger brother, now in the gymnasium, speaks nothing but Lithuanian when possible, though his mother does not know the language at all, and his father only slightly. A still older brother, a successful attorney in St. Petersburg, is now studying the language and feels fully Lithuanian. For six and a half centuries, the Finns were ruled by Sweden. In 1809, their country became subject to Russia. Their culture has been continuously Swedish. At the University of Helsingfors, where 25 years ago all the work was done in Swedish, now a larger part of it is in Finnish, and the Finnish spirit is increasing by leaps and bounds. Seven and a half centuries of Swedish culture with no Finnish education has had no effect except to stimulate the growth of Finnish national feeling. The people live amicably together. The government has been increasingly Russian, but there are absolutely no signs of assimilation. Helsingfors and the other Finnish cities look more like Detroit or Washington than like St. Petersburg, though Russian influence has been working a full century on them. Hmm. Okay, looks like he's headed into the conclusion now. Illustrations of the development of national spirit among the warring people and others might, might be greatly multiplied. Enough have been given to show that the conflict in Europe is not simple, but is the product of complex social psychology, and that whatever the outcome of the war, these forces will continue to work until their demands are satisfied. Organized pan-Slavism is no more to be desired than organized pan-Germanism, but group freedom is essential to the human soul and must come. The dream of pan-Slavism is a potential fact in the struggle to attain this freedom. This social law, which underlies the war in Europe, must be learned as a result of the present gigantic conflict, or peace will not be assured. The precipitation of the war was due to the fact that the highly organized nations of Europe were so superlatively prepared for war, partly apparently because of the Polish tension, that they were in a state of unstable equilibrium which could no longer stand the tension. There again, that balance idea of equilibrium. This war should silence forever the old dogma that the way to preserve peace is to be prepared for war. Ah, there it is, full-fledged there. That's the balance of power idea right there. This war, which is an apparent travesty on civilization, is probably a prelude to ultimate international peace, since the time necessary for physical recovery will be great enough to give opportunity for the adoption of obvious sociological principles which could make no headway against the political medievalism of the immediate past. Huh, that's a 
kind of a curious ending. I didn't expect him to go that route. A, a prelude to ultimate international peace, since since base, I think he's saying basically that um, the fact that World War One broke out despite the balance of power idea and as an almost direct result of ignoring the necessity of granting these nationalist movements their own states, um, will teach the world that, okay, that's what you have to do, and then finally there will be ultimate international peace. Uh, still <laughs> quite naive from our perspective in 2017, but okay, there you have it. Thank you, Herbert Adolphus Miller. So, interesting, that, that was a take on nationalism in uh, just as World War I had just descended upon Europe in December of 1914. Huh. Wow, that was very well written, very fiery in itself. I almost felt like I was reading a nationalist speech. <laughs> and it, but, but also, it like really hit the key points and was very concise and well stated. So that was interesting. I didn't know all the background to um, the nationalism in Bohemia or in Poland either. I mean, I researched into the Balkans, but Bohemia and, and Poland is a little far off the map for that. So, but I, it's interesting to see how um, crucial that was to the lead up of World War One as well. Hmm. Huh. So there you go. Rise of nationalism and how it uh, lit the match that would light the fuse of World War One. Well, that's it for this episode, folks. Thank you for listening. If you like what we're doing here, if you feel a nationalist sentiment to rise up and join your fellow speakers of history speak, why not support the show? You can get great perks by supporting us on Patreon, like your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. Support the show at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. All right, everybody, I'll see you next week for more authentic articles on the pre-World War I balance of power. We're going to be talking about the Balkans, and we're going to have a special guest. Remember that awesome guy who's been making really awesome uh, maps for us, Adam McKithern? Well, I invited him on the show, and he's going to be there to help us um, understand the complicated Balkan situation that led up to World War I. And with his military experience, that could be really interesting. So definitely check that out. We'll see you next week. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. <laughs>